And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. You all know John King. Many of us are transfixed on election nights when he mixes technology and 37 years of experience as a political reporter to break down the returns on CNN's magic wall. I've spoken with John here before about his life and career, but two things have happened. He decided this summer to give up his anchor duties to return to his first love, which is covering presidential elections from the field, actually going out there, talking to voters, and sharing the story of what's going on in our country. The second is that he publicly disclosed during the pandemic that he's been battling multiple sclerosis for more than a decade. We talked earlier this week about the challenges John's faced and the challenges our democracy faces heading into the 2024 elections. Here's that conversation. John King, great to see you, man. Great to see you as well. I was uh, accustomed to seeing you every day at noon, so I need to check in on you. You know, you, you did this show, you established this wonderful show, Inside Politics, which really was and continues to be with Dana, the smartest kind of political conversation there is. But then you just disappeared on me, man. (laughs) Why'd you do that? I'm in a transition. I'm about to hit the road more. Um, We've known each other a long time. I love the show. I had the Inside Politics platform. It, It was such a treat and an honor for me to bring the name back to CNN, because when I switched from print to television, that was Bernie and Judy. Um, It was a great political show on CNN. It was my home when I was a White House correspondent in those early days for CNN. And it's where I learned to go from being really horrible at television to I hope approaching approaching mediocrity. You did all right. Yeah. So it was really a privilege and an honor to bring that name back. But I did it for seven years. For five and a half of those years, it was seven days a week because I was also doing the Sunday version of it through the 2016 campaign, which was wow. And then through the 2020 campaign, which was again, wow. And I was gearing up to do it again. And David, we've known each other a long time. And I just said, you know what? You can't answer the biggest questions. Um, You can't answer in Washington. Uh, And so change change is good. Dana will do a fantastic job. She's the best political reporter in the business, I would argue, certainly at CNN. She'll do a great job with that platform. She'll do new and different things with it, which is good. Change is good in every aspect of your life. And and I'm really excited to get back out and um, meet America. Well, what was... uh Interesting to me is when I met you, you were doing the exactly that. You were a national political reporter for the Associated Press and you were traveling around the country and you were talking to people. And, you know, when people look at you at that magic wall, they assume it's just a matter of pushing buttons and disgorging statistics. But what you bring to it is a kind of integral knowledge of the communities that are represented on that map. And that only comes from actually going out there and discovering America. So you really come full circle here. Uh, I hope so. Uh, I'm really excited. I'm a little nervous, actually. I haven't done this in a long time, (laughs) but we're going to get out. We're going to start in Iowa with Republicans because the first question in the campaign is, can Trump be stopped? Uh, And then we move on from there through the, we'll get some voter groups together during the Republicans. uh, And then we'll start going toward the general election, looking out of the corner of our eyes, is there a serious threat to Joe Biden or, is, or or even if it's not a serious threat, is there perhaps some evidence of general election weakness in whatever the primary challengers can get uh, out of President Biden at this moment? So there, are, I have a ton of questions and I'm really looking forward to getting out on the road. To your point about the, the map, I appreciate the compliment. I do think that, you know, my experience doing this uh, makes me a little different. There are others who do the map and do the wall and they do it their way and they do just fine. If I bring something unique to it, it is that, that in my first few campaigns, especially, I was on the road all the time. Uh, it's the great gift of doing this for a living. They pay me to learn. Um, you know, and we met back when you were still a reporter before you made your transition. And this is my 10th presidential campaign. And it just got stuck in my head. And I hope I'm right, uh, that the place for me was not at a desk in Washington, D.C. The place for me was at where it all began, trying to learn again, because I think had another crossroads campaign. Yeah. You live through these campaigns and you think, you know, well, that'll never happen again. I mean, you were, you know, the architect of a history making campaign and you think that'll never happen again. But I was going through this, thinking about this conversation we were going to have. And you say, oh, 1992, that'll never happen again. A third party candidate like that, 2000, Al Gore, you know, Florida, 
Uh, Bush v. Gore, that'll never happen again. 2016, uh, Trump, that'll never happen again. 2020, Biden given up for dead. He's now the president of the United States. Uh, and so for me, it's just a reminder that Washington is almost always wrong at the beginning about these things. And the answers don't come here. That's no disrespect to the great people who work in Washington, D.C. There are a lot of great reporters who really understand Washington. Uh, but you can't understand America sitting in Washington. So I'm dying to get back out on the road. Well, I did well in my career being based in the Middle West and not on the coast and not in Washington. And the best advice I ever got, and I've, I probably said to you the last time we did this, and I've said it on this podcast, I know several times, but uh, Gary Hart, who you know, and was, uh, while he wasn't successful in getting himself elected president, was a brilliant political thinker. The thing he said to me that I've always retained, and this was way back in, in the 80s, he said, just remember, Washington's always the last to get the news. And I, I, I thought that was so wise and so true. And uh, the great thing about people is that they are counterintuitive. And even today, and I really, I, I, I have some more questions about you, and I'll, I'll weave them in because you're at an interesting place in life too. But when I go on television, a lot of the questions I get are, can Trump survive? Can Trump survive this? Can Trump survive that? It seems to me we've been asking that question for eight years. And uh, there's something going on out there that really warrants going out and talking to people and understanding how they're viewing this because they're viewing it in an entirely different way. You know, and it may all change. You, one of the things you, you are great at is the disclaimer. And I appreciate that because Anybody who's sure of anything in this business is nuts right now, and you don't want to rule anything in or out. And it may be the aggregation of indictments and so on will topple Trump. But you look at this New York Times poll this morning, which was just show, a show of overwhelming force on his part. And this is after uh, news of the pending third indictment, you know, and there'll probably be a couple more. Uh, that and another this next month. Uh, and yet people, uh, you know, his base is sticking with him. Republicans in the main are sticking with him. And no one, in, uh, including Ron DeSantis, is even within hailing distance uh, uh, of him. So uh, it's important. Uh, we'll get back to this, by the way. But you being out there is the best service that you can perform. and. Not talking, but listening uh, and trying to figure out what it is that people are trying to say. Uh, and if I were running a political operation at any news organization, I'd, I'd do exactly what CNN is doing with you. And I'd take my smartest people and I'd say, hit the road. I don't care if you file every day, uh, but give me some good stories about what's actually happening in this country. So I, I think it's great that you're doing it. Here's the thing. I just want to ask you a couple more personal questions. And then I, and then I want to geek out on politics, which I always love to do with you. Uh, but um, uh, one is, I notice, in, you know, I always read these memos, uh, uh, my great researcher, Miriam Annenberg, who's here listening, uh, always sends me these wonderful memos uh, that are long briefs on the people I'm talking to. And of course, we've known each other for a long time. We've spoken before. But I notice at the top of it that you've got a big birthday coming up <laughs> in August. Oh, Miriam's too thorough. <laughs> and I also noticed, I also noticed, and I knew this from the last time we spoke, that you lost your folks, uh, one at 55, your, your dad at 55, and your mom at 59. And I know how devoted you were to them and they to you. Um, and I'm just maybe I'm projecting my own sort of view of the world as I get older. But I was wondering whether part of your desire to change things up, to have another chapter, had something to do with that. I haven't thought about it that way, honestly, um, but I'm sure that factors into it. Um, look, I miss my parents every day. I talk to my parents every day. I come from a blue collar household where they busted their you know what's uh, so that we, we could have a better life. Uh, and I, I get angry sometimes in that, you know, I have succeeded in ways, uh, both financially, but more professionally beyond my wildest dreams growing up in Dorchester, Massachusetts. And I 
the greatest crime, David, is I can't give back, right? I would love to send my parents around the world. I would love to just do something for them. And they wouldn't want much, but uh, so that does define And, uh, and oh my, how proud would they have been of you? Yeah, and, and I, thank you. I appreciate that. that. That does define me. But, you know, uh, my dad was all about hard work. And when my dad died, uh, you know, you learned the great secret. My mom was actually way stronger than my dad. And I thought he was the strongest person I would ever meet. Uh, and she kept it together after he passed. And then she left us five years after that. Um, and so the gift, the gift that they gave us was telling us, reminding us that education was the gateway to everything. And we got a better education and I got very lucky, uh, through hard work and good luck at the AP, got a good job, uh, in Providence and then got to Boston and got a chance to cover Dukakis. Uh, and so I hope that work ethic that comes from my parents stays with me. But to me, it's the learning thing. It's just the, um, don't get complacent. Don't sit still. Celebrate the rearview mirror. I have no complaints. I'm far from perfect. You know, and I have, you know, we all have issues at work every now and then, whatever we do for a living. Uh, that's not always the greatest day at the office. Uh, but I think wallowing in that is just a huge mistake. I have been so lucky and so fortunate first at the AP and then here at CNN. Uh, to be allowed to learn, to be allowed to see things, to be allowed to cover big events and to travel the world and to travel this amazing country. And so, yeah, sure, I'm about to turn 60. That's a big number. I feel better at 59, closing in on 60, than I did 10 years ago. Um, I'm, I have a disease, multiple sclerosis, which I now yeah. talk about publicly. Yes. Because I think it's important to understand that, look around, somebody near you has some invisible struggle they're going through. So have a little more empathy. Have a little more patience. First of all, by the way, anybody who turns 60, you know what I call them? Kid. Okay. So uh, I feel like a kid. I'm good. <laughs> but I wanted to talk to you about this because I was watching you the day that you spoke publicly on the air about your MS. And it was in the midst of the pandemic. And it was at a time when, and, you know, they're, they're continually just watch the Robert Kennedy campaign. There's still controversy, you know, false controversy in my view, but about vaccines. And you thank people who uh, took looked after themselves so that those of us who have um, those those of us among the larger community who have uh, immune compromised systems, as you do, would be less jeopardized, would be less vulnerable. Um, and I thought. What you just said is such an important thing that I like to stress, which is um, vulnerability is part of the human condition. And we, you know, especially a guy like you, you come, your dad was a, a, a corrections officer and worked in a prison, in a jail, in the county jail. And, you know, you come from uh, a blue collar family and uh, probably the, their as in many families, uh, the emphasis was on soldiering through, sucking it up. Don't talk about it. Don't acknowledge vulnerability. Uh, I thought it was such an important thing you did uh, that day. Uh, and I, I, I think it was a great example. You know, I think we all need to be forthright about these challenges because there are a lot of people out there who have them and uh, who want to know that it's okay to talk about it, to go out and get help. To, You know, I talk about a lot in relations to mental health, but it's true in every realm. But I did want to ask you about it, um, and because you were diagnosed right around the time, I think, when uh, I was involved in the first Obama campaign, right, back in the, around 2008. Um, how has that, how has it affected you? Uh, how do you cope with it? How has it affected you? Uh, how has it changed your outlook? Not immediately. Uh, in the early days, I was frightened. And well, one thing I would give anybody, if you have a health challenge, resist the urge to spend too much time on the internet. Yeah, man. Dr. Google can drive you nuts. Dr. Google will, yes, will make everything worse. It will increase your stress. But, uh, you know, 15 years now after my diagnosis, and I probably had it for eight or 10 years before that, and was having minor symptoms that they just couldn't quite figure out what was happening to me. I'm a more optimistic person. Uh, MS is with me every day. Uh, the summertime is the worst. Heat and stress are my, my triggers. It's different. It's a disease you find out is different for everybody. But heat and stress are generally across the board um, 
they impact people. And as you know, D.C. in the summertime can be a rather hot and steamy. Well, all of America is hot and steamy these days. Well, it is. It is. And, and uh, world, so, yeah. so I'm actually having, knock on wood, for me, a pretty good summer. Uh, my legs go out. Sometimes the 10 steps between the front door and the car in the driveway on a really hot day, my legs just turn to rubber. Uh, and they get and they get very heavy and they get hard. It gets hard. My mobility is hard. Uh, and then that gets exhausting. And then you have the headaches and everything because it gets exhausting just to do basic movements and make sure that you're staying, uh, keeping in balance. And, and sometimes it moves to my hands. But the most important thing I've learned, David, is how lucky I am. I get, I worry sometimes about talking about my MS because my MS, it sucks some days. It, it sucks some weeks, um, but it has largely been manageable. Um, through my personal stubbornness, through great health care, and just through luck. Uh, my, my disease is what's called relapsing, remitting. And yes, I occasionally get a new lesion or some of my lesions grow a little bit and they can cause some issues with me. But over the 15 years, my progression has been so very modest, which makes me incredibly lucky. And I worry sometimes that people see, oh, that guy on TV, he says he has MS. Look at him. He's standing there for 15 hours, you know, working the magic wall. It must not be that bad. Number one, I'm hiding some of the days I can, I, I've learned how to hide my symptoms from people uh, so that I can function. But number two, and much more importantly, uh, I am so lucky on the spectrum of MS. It is a disease that can be incredibly cruel, incredibly quickly to many people um, who can go, you know, in six months can go from skiing to being in a wheelchair. Uh, and so I'm hesitant sometimes to talk about it, but the feedback since I did uh, from the MS community has been heartwarming, actually mind-blowing. The, the day I said it on live television, I didn't plan to talk about it that day, but it was clearly front of mind through the pandemic that, you know, wearing a mask takes away your freedom. Getting a vaccine is the government taking away your freedom. No, wearing a mask is protecting yourself and maybe that stranger in front of you who has MS or some other immuno issue or is just nervous and wants to feel a little calmer. Getting a vaccine, once the science I mean, they're safe. They're safe. I've had my vaccines. I've had boosters. Um, I'm doing great. Um, it, it allowed us to get back together and have a conversation uh, around the table, which made for a better program, number one. Uh, and it just, it's better for your mental health to be around friends, to be around family. And so I, 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 that blurted out that day because we were having a conversation about somebody who used to work for another network saying all these things were stripping us of our freedom and were some kind of a government conspiracy. We can have debates about these things. We should have debates about these things. Anytime the government wants to mandate something or recommend something, that's the blessing of America. But I thought some of those conversations went too far, and I just thought my personal experience might help a little bit. And here we are. I thought it was so interesting because you, perhaps more than most, have been assiduous about when and how you interpose your own points of view. Uh, and that's the old reporter's instincts in you uh, to kind of uh, probe issues rather than try and drive them. Uh, and so it was an unusual thing for you to, you know, but it does lead to it. And, and by the way, that person who used to work for another network was Tucker Carlson, I suspect. We can, we can say it here. You you're, are correct, sir. But uh, but uh, but um, I, I'd love you to talk a little about that issue. Uh, the Trump era has been really hard for journalists because even if you are reporting facts, if the facts are unfavorable to the former president, he will depict it as a lie and as a, a malicious lie. and. You know, one of the things that he's done brilliantly is to try and sideline the news media as an objective source of facts and information, because as he told Leslie Stahl in a sidebar right before he took office, he didn't want people to believe you. He believed the media when they reported facts that were unfavorable to him. He's been in incredibly successful at that, and it's had an impact on the whole news business, hasn't it? Absolutely. And you say he's incredibly effective at it. I think the poll you mentioned a little bit earlier is your proof right there. He's above 50% in that poll. In May, these polls, he gets high 30s, high 40s, and you know we'll get to the politics in a minute, but you're thinking about can he be beat? 
Uh, if someone's above 50, they get pretty hard to beat. <laughs> I don't think, honestly, I can't think of one example of someone who had a lead this big at this point and ended up winning the uh, losing the nomination. Now, these are unique circumstances, but that has to be said. You know, yes. he's in a pretty good spot. But part of how he does that, the reason he's there is because he has conditioned his most loyal supporters to not listen to us at all, to ignore us, or to, if I say A, assume that it is Z. If I say up, it, the answer's down. Uh, he has spent years on this, and it's cynical, but it's effective. Uh, and I, that's part of my challenge, getting out there on the road. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support, your sleep number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Feeling overwhelmed with the constant flow of headlines and trying to keep up with the latest twist of this election year? Take a deep breath and turn on Crooked Media's What A Day podcast. In just 20 short minutes, What A Day hosted by me, Juanita Tolliver, and my co-hosts, Trey Bell Anderson, Josie Duffy Rice, and Priyanka Arabindi, breaks down the biggest news stories into bite-sized pieces that don't make you want to cry. And the best part is, we do it every day. So start your day off right with What A Day, available wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss an episode. And now, back to the show. Because you are a high-profile person, do you think people will react to you as a CNN personality? I Listen, during the midterms, I tried to go. I went to a diner. We had a beautiful breakfast at a diner in the northern edge of Northampton County, Pennsylvania. One of the I, I saw the piece, yeah. One of the great swing counties. And I went up to the woman who ran the diner afterwards to thank her. She had no idea who we were. Um, they don't watch CNN up there. Um, and uh, I went up to thank her and then just to start a conversation with her. And the second I said I was from CNN, she asked me to leave. Um, we had just had a wonderful breakfast in her beautiful establishment. Uh, and then a couple guys in the booth started barking about CNN. And I said, I just want to listen to you. I'm not here to pick a fight. I, I want to understand you. And it was clear after a couple of minutes that I was not going to succeed that day. So I just politely said, everybody have a great day. I'll be back someday. Uh, I want to come back. Yeah, That was not the moment for it. I'm not afraid to get yelled at. I want to hear people. Um, I, I think, look, you know, Trump has cynically told people he's the only source of fact. That's dangerous. Uh, back to your point about the business. I'm not anti-Trump, David. I'm pro-truth. Uh, and so when you get into fights with Trump, sometimes they think you're picking a fight with Trump. I do not enjoy saying that a president of the United States or a former president of the United States is a liar. I can only say those things if I can factually back them up. Um, sadly, when it comes to Donald Trump, I can factually back them up time and time and time and time again. I say that with zero joy. Zero joy. He's a person of significant influence in American political life. Uh, a lot of Democrats, progressives, anti-Trump Republicans don't want us to talk about him at all. Uh, he's the leading candidate for the nomination, and you could argue he has at least a 50% chance of being, again, the president of the United States. So it's my job to talk about him. Um, I don't do it with any animus toward him personally. Um, does it bother me as someone who's covered elections now for you know, almost 40 years um, that he questions the process, attacks the poll workers, attacks the system, questions whether two plus two equals four? He questions you know, basic arithmetic and challenges it. That's not good for the system. I think we all need to take a deep breath sometimes and make sure it's not personal. Make sure it's, make sure it's not personal, that it's about the truth and the fact and the process and the institutions. And yes, he has challenged our business. Our business, everything, every institution, 
everything in life is being well, he's challenged. He's doing the same thing. He's doing the same thing now, of course, with the the Department of Justice, the FBI, and he's turned a lot of his supporters uh, against those institutions. And he tries to keep you in the ring, David, right? And so you can understand that he, it, this is a boxing match, right? And so as long as you're in the fight, you're not going to question your guy, right? You're, you're, you got to stay on your team because you're in the fight. Uh, and I think Trump does that. Again, it's cynical, but it's effective in the sense that, you know, there are people make the mistake of saying, you know, these Trump voters are all, you know, on Kool-Aid or they're all dumb or they're all deplorables or whatever. Well, there's nearly 80 million of them. Um, they're doctors, they're lawyers, they're car mechanics, they're your postal man, they're your brother, they're your sister, they're your coworker. Why do they feel this way? But his, he, most of that, most of them, I, I truly believe if they got out of the fight, they might still support Donald Trump for some policy reason or for some personality reason. But when it comes to, was there election integrity in 2020? Did Donald Trump lose? I think most people, if they got out of the fight, get there. Uh, would k- get to that. P- I trust the common sense of 99.9999% of the American people, whatever their politics, they're good, hardworking people, and they will figure it out. But he keeps them in the fight. Um, they're out to get me. I'm under attack. Well, and by extension, they me, they're they out get to you. get you. Right. Yeah. yeah if, they're, if they get me, they get you. And so understanding how are people so disillusioned? Why are they so disaffected? Why do they so distrust traditional politicians and institutions like the media? Why are they in that place uh, that they are susceptible? So many of them are susceptible to that. What's the secret sauce of Donald Trump? It, 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 there, there was a pre-existing condition. I, mean, you go, I, I mentioned 1992, this globalization, anti-immigration. You know, Ross Perot was onto something. He got nearly 20 yeah. million votes. I think people in my business did not take it as seriously as we should have at the time. Yeah, we sort of yeah. moved, It was a passing fad. He spent all this money, whatever. No, that was the seeds of what would become Trump later on steroids and in a much darker way. Um, but it, it was there. Again, back to the idea, why do I want to get back on the road? Um, to learn from past mistakes in some ways. Yeah. Well, I, I think there, are two, there were two sort of seminal events that really uh, roiled American politics and in many ways global politics. And we're seeing the reverberations of it today. One was what the globalization and the unequal distribution of benefits of globalization. And the, so, you know, I'm sitting here in the Midwest and the decimation of communities, you know, almost overnight was one. The other was the financial crisis, and which also wreaked havoc on a lot of middle Americans in a lot of communities around this country. And what people saw and look, I, I mean, I've talked about this publicly. I'm not, but in the White House, we we are, we we were struggling with this all the time. In order to save the financial system, and given the laws we had to work with, there was a limit to what we could do to hold these folks accountable who really triggered the crisis. But people sitting out here who lost their home or lost their job, what they saw was, hey, those guys get bailouts. You know, poor people get handouts, and I'm out of luck. And it radicalized, uh, it helped radicalize uh, people. And I think we were not as aware of it because a lot of the, imp- a lot of the impacts um, were felt more in some places than others. And unless you get out to those places, unless you're talking to people who live there, I'm sitting here in, in, uh, in rural Michigan. I've got a lot, of, a lot of good neighbors, some of whom voted for Barack Obama and then voted for Donald Trump. And this feeling that they had been discarded and that they had been disrespected um, was pretty intense, is pretty intense. And he has exploited it brilliantly and continues to exploit it brilliantly to this day in a way that I think a lot of folks in Washington don't entirely understand. But now, now that we're into that discussion, let me put a button on the last one. You said you're not anti-Trump, you're pro-truth, but being pro-truth puts you on a collision course with Donald Trump. And that's the problem for journalists. You know, you it's very, very hard to just report facts without running headlong into him because he doesn't tell the truth in many instances. So that's a problem. It is a problem. It's also a huge challenge. One of the things I like to tell Trump voters is go back and look at his rallies from 2016, where he loved me uh, because he was winning uh, and I was doing the math. 
and he was winning. And then in 2020, he hated me uh, because he was losing. And what I like to tell the Trump voters was it's the same map and it's the same math. He just came out on the other end uh, in 2020. Yeah. You know, I was I was no different. The math was different. The votes were different. He even got he got more votes in 2020 than he did in 2016, but he still lost because of the turnout. Uh, it, it's but you're right. It puts you on a collision course. And look, this is uh, I'm not going to solve this in one cycle. Our business is not going to solve this in one cycle. This is a 20 or 25 year generational challenge uh, for for people in all institutions to regain trust. Uh, there's only one way one way to start, and that's one on one conversations. And if I can make a tiny impact on, you know, um, I'm not the enemy. I'm here to listen and learn. If I can make a tiny impact on that, then amen. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, the challenge becomes more intense by the day just because of the nature of modern communications and social media and so on and the, the speed at which, um, you know, memes can spread and disinformation can spread. It, you know, it's, it's when you, now you had a little taste. You were working for a wire service, so you guys had to file more frequently than those of us who worked at daily newspapers did. But, you know, I mean, it's a it's a chore to keep up hour to hour in this environment, and that makes sort of the policing of truth all the more uh, all the more difficult. Hey, John, the last thing I want to say on this is uh, I didn't invite you here to just hear me talk, but one of the things that I appreciate about you, and you sort of got at it before, is you have reverence for the system. You have reverence for the institutions of democracy, the process of democracy. And I just want to say this. I have lots of Republican friends. Uh, and, you know, my view is you win an election, you lose an election, whoever wins is there. People put them there and you work together and do the best uh, you can. And I've said often, you know, George W. Bush, we weren't exactly kind to him in the 2008 campaign. And yet in the transition, he could not have been kinder in terms of the help that he offered us, not because he loved us or what we said, or he agreed with President Obama on, you know, many issues, but because he felt it was his responsibility as a trustee of the democracy to hand the government off in good shape and give us the best start we should. That's the way it should be. And the real concern about Trump is that he does not have reverence for these institutions. He does not have reverence for the system. Destroying it is part of his political project. And that I find dangerous and concerning. Not personal to him. It's about the nature of our democracy. So I, I could not agree more. Uh, he has disdain. Not only does he not have respect for the institutions, right. but right. he has disdain, whether that's the courts, whether that's local election officials. And look again, you know, uh, uh, it's, sometimes it's uh, sound like a broken record. But, you know, one of the things I think you just have to sometimes remind his own supporters, you know, he had the right to recounts in all these states. He sued more than 70 times and he lost. A lot of Trump judges threw out his suits uh, as just ludicrous, lacking in fact. Rudy Giuliani is now conceded. Um, they didn't have any evidence. They were just throwing jello at the wall. And victimizing people in the process. Right, uh, right. By, I, I, by I agree imputing, on the, impugning them. Yeah, I agree with you on the dangerous part. And I hope this is a temporary thing and that we can go back to fighting about policy and arguing about the role of government and taxes and spending and what are we going to do about the climate and what about health care. Uh, those would be great debates to get back to actual good policy debates. There's a lot for the country uh, to debate right now, not about whether your county election official, whether they're a Democrat or Republican or an independent. Um, is being fair and is counting the votes because we just have years and years and years and years and years of history uh, that these people are honest, underpaid, hardworking civil servants um, doing the the bricks and mortar of democracy. If we lose respect for that, we're just screwed. I mean, I, yeah, there's just no way back from that. Uh, so I hope that part's temporary. I, I, it's certainly not over, uh, but I, I hope that we can get through the next couple of election cycles and everybody just thinks, okay, that was a bad idea. Let's go back to respecting the institutions, respecting the process, fortify it, make it stronger if we need to, answer the questions about technology or whatever if you have them. But then let's get back to having campaigns about ideas, uh, not about lunacy. You know, when you uh, you started in 1985 at the Associated Press, the year before you started, Ronald Reagan carried 49 states. 49 states. We don't pay attention by the time we get down to the final strokes of an election campaign now to like 40 
two of them because we know what's going to happen. We know the blue states will be blue states, the red states will be red states, and then there's a handful of states that through, because of the demographic mix, uh, are competitive. That's a huge sea change during the years that you and I've been at this. My first campaign, I covered the presidential race. You remember, you you mentioned 84, Ronald Reagan wins 49. Uh, In 88, Dukakis only won 10. You know, and the joke in the campaign afterwards, well, we're making progress, right? We're on the way back. <laughs> but, you know, Dukakis only won 10 states. Uh, two of them, David, were Iowa and West Virginia. Well, Iowa yeah. and West Virginia, we won't even think about those states. We won't, put, we won't spend a minute thinking about those states in the presidential context. Yeah. Well, Obama won Iowa and um, Indiana. You know, so we, well, we won Indiana, and that's not a possibility anytime soon. Uh, I mean, we, we, this, this change has actually happened really, really quickly. I mean, we're, we're so fundamentally hunkered down. And we're looking at probably, you know, a third consecutive presidential election by everything we see on the table today, inserting all those, it's a long way off caveats, uh, but it could be the, you know, third consecutive presidential election where fewer than 100,000 votes in three or four states decide who's the next president of the United States. That's, you know, it puts a huge responsibility on our business, but it just, it just gets so in such a wow way as the polarization and the the current, the fragility of the divide, if you will. So getting back to Trump, it seems to me that these indictments, rather than becoming an impediment, they become the core of his campaign. And he has made, as you pointed out earlier, huge progress uh, with it, but he has painted these as the uh, weaponization of government uh, against him of by the Biden administration, corrupt prosecutors to try and sideline him in this campaign. And large numbers of Republican voters have embraced that argument as they embrace the argument that the election was was stolen. And yet you have his opponents who are sort of unwilling to challenge him on either of those things because he's so popular. I do think you're beginning to see modest seeds of change in the idea of are his opponents or the more serious opponents, those who can raise money and those who might have a potential of a base. Uh, DeSantis, for example, starting to get more aggressive uh, in going after Trump on the legal challenges, probably because he has no choice. He's had a horrible few months. And, you know, people, people can rebound from that. There is still a lot of time. But I do think, look, Trump has made it about Trump. And when it's about Trump, Trump benefits. And so it's upside down. It's counter to any political gravity that, you know, I always say, you know, God, this is my 10th presidential campaign. I have all this great wisdom and experience. Uh, Sometimes that's worth something. Sometimes it's worth absolutely nothing. Uh, And I think when it comes to, you know, all of the things that your first reflex would tell you, this will hurt Trump somehow in his bubble, um, help Trump because he keeps people in the fight. He keeps the they're after me, and then they're coming for you. And he knows how to control the narrative. Right. And he forces all his opponents to get into pretzels about, you know, do I criticize him today? Do I just talk about my policy stuff today? Uh, but it's about him. And if there's 10 or 12 of them, and he's, again, in this New York Times Siena College poll above 50, and a lot of these other polls, you know, in the either high 30s or mid 40s, then just go back to 2016. He becomes almost impossible, if not impossible, to beat. If there are more than four people on the ballot, and right now there's, you know, a bunch of them are going to drop out after the debate, uh, before the first of the year, then quickly after Iowa and New Hampshire. But by then, has he won Iowa, won New Hampshire on the South Carolina? That snowball starts down the hill. He gets hard to stop. So this is, it's maybe contrarian. I don't know the right word for it. Things that should be quote unquote bad or benefiting him in the short term. That doesn't mean they help him as a nominee out in the general election, no, that's, you know, that's a whole that, you know, that's a whole different ball game. Yes, where then you factor in what do people think of the incumbent, right? At the same time, but in the short term, this is benefiting Trump because he dominates the debate, he controls the narrative. That's the right way to put it, the way you put it, and he just gets everybody else flummoxed because they don't know how to handle him. Well, I'll give you an example: DeSantis, and what the Times poll suggests is that. Almost all of his fundamental arguments are sort of falling short here. And his basic strategic theory, which is that if he could just be a less crazy version of Trump, that the Trump voters would migrate to him and 
and that Trump would implode and they would come in. That's not happening. But his fundamental thrust at the beginning was uh, we've got to end this culture of losing. And yet he won't acknowledge that Trump lost. You know, if you you can't do the two things at once and he is in a big game of twister. Try, and so are many of the others. And, you know, you mentioned he could, if Trump gets on a roll. I honestly believe if he has a good outcome, if he sh- if he wins Iowa, it'd be very hard to stop him. I'm not sure that people can. And there is this myth that, uh, among, or not, I guess it's a hope among regular Republicans, right? Republicans who remember the Republican Party when it was a different party with a different base that if we someone's going to come along here and coalesce all of this Trump opposition and we'll beat him. Well, obviously, if he's over 50 percent, that's not going to happen. But even if he's not, it's not clear to me who that person would be at this point. You know, who who has the wherewithal to put it together? That's one of the reasons I'm fascinated to get out there. And I, you're absolutely right that if you're going to stop him, you got to stop him early. And I, you may be right that even if he just wins Iowa, that might be boom, done. Uh, certainly, if you don't get him in Iowa or New Hampshire, you know, you got someone's got to prove they can beat him. Uh, remember when Barack Obama beat Hillary Clinton, right? Game changing, just game changing. Right. right. We had to win Iowa. We knew we had to win Iowa. And so can somebody pierce the invincibility, the inevitability of Donald Trump? Uh, if you're going to do it, you better do it early. And so I do think Iowa and New Hampshire are absolutely critical. Third on their calendar, remember the Republicans are keeping the traditional calendar. Third on their calendars, South Carolina where you have both Nikki Haley and Senator Scott. Can one of them get something going in time to have a home state thing? You know, these are all things we think about uh, and we have to, because you have to keep an open mind about these things. But right now for me, which is why my first trip is going to be Iowa and our first group of voters that we're going to follow over the next five months will be in Iowa, uh, is that, you know, if you're going to stop Trump, I I think you make a very strong case that it better be there. Uh, it, be- it better be in the first one just to shock the system, uh, because if you don't shock the system and get you know, Republican voters, including Trump voters, to say, whoa, wait a minute here, um, then he's gone. And once he gets because of their winner take all rules, that horse gets that horse gets any momentum in the winner take all rules that are the Republican Party. Just forget about it. I, I think the other reason is that if there is someone who's going to coalesce voters, they need to emerge quickly. And they need to drive everyone else out of the race. If you got a bunch of people who are sort of mucking around and decide to hang around, you're right. Haley or Scott could conceivably do well in their home state. They have to survive to their home state. If they get shellacked in the first two, that's not the way you overtake Trump in South Carolina, where, by the way, he's quite strong. Absolutely. He's strong everywhere. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. So there have been arrests, suspensions, disciplinary hearings. They're shutting down graduation events. At this moment, the part of the protests that are admirable are young people calling attention to atrocities. Michael Roth is the president of Wesleyan University. I would like to make a space for them to do that, as long as that space doesn't prevent other people from pursuing their education. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. And now, back to the show. You mentioned the Republicans kept the traditional map. Democrats didn't. Biden remade the map and made South Carolina first for Democrats because it's a strong state for him. But the other thing that makes this whole election so peculiar and so hard to game out is Biden and his standing. And I could make a straight face argument to you that he's had a very, very strong presidency. He's passed some generationally important bills like the infrastructure bill and the chips bill. Objectively, if you look at where the country was when he came and where it is now, in terms of the economy. And yes, there's lingering concern about inflation. There's lingering concern about the pandemic. But it, it seems like the whole, the, 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 the main issue and the hardest one to address has to do with age. And I don't know what you do about that. 
well, then then we're screwed because, you know, you're the campaign strategist guru. You're the one who's supposed to explain to me what you do with that. <laughs> Look, I, I do think you get the fundamental challenge here. Now, maybe, maybe if it's Trump, Biden again, uh, that the same dynamics kick in as 2020 and suburban America, enough people in suburban America say we cannot go back to that chaos uh, and Biden wins four more years on that. But I do think you raise the key question. Number one, he's the incumbent this time. And so your traditional dynamic is, you know, do you like your car, right? Do you like your car? Right. You want to keep driving this car or you want right. to get a new car? Uh, right. That's the traditional dynamic. Do those rules apply? Again, you know, we live, we in, this, know. We live in this crazy never, age. We haven't had two presidents running against each other since 1912. Right. And so uh, does that apply? And so, you know, uh, in some ways, this reminds me of the 1992 campaign. You had three candidates then. And, you know, maybe we will in this one, too, with the no labels thing. Who knows? Which is no small matter. Right. But the economic numbers are coming back for Biden faster than they did earlier than they did for George H.W. Bush. But if you look at late in the 92 campaign, we went into we went into an actual mild recession then. You know, in 1991, we are not going into a recession here, but because of the pandemic and because of inflation, people feel like we have. People mm -hmm. feel like we've been in either a recession for or a sure. They can call it what they want. Everyone has their own description for it. But the numbers are starting to come back. Most of them, not all of them, but whether it's the unemployment rate, whether it's inflation coming down, whether it's growth in the economy, um, the numbers are in a better shape for Biden than they were for H.W. Bush as an incumbent president. The question is, do people feel it? Yes. Do they perceive it? They did not yes. in 1992. Biden has more time, but can he sell it without sounding overly, you know, you can't tell people you feel better. You can help get them there by getting into their communities and saying, look around. You can help them, but you can't be arrogant in telling them, hey, you're wrong. Listen, we learned that in the Obama years, you know, we, we were objectively getting better in 2010 and 2011, but people weren't feeling it. And the, the jolt had been so dramatic. Uh, and what we learned is you can't jawbone people into feeling good. You just, you just can't do it. But I think the larger thing, John, is that, and by the way, I didn't include that litany about Biden, you know, rallying the, the, uh, the world uh, against Russia's aggression in Ukraine, which by the way, incredibly has drawn more opposition from Republicans who used to be the hawkish party uh but the problem that they need to address and i do think it's a hard problem is a sense that things have been out of control and he's not in command that he's just not in command uh and that's what you hear you know in focus groups and um i think what it portends is a very negative campaign in which people are being asked like who represents the biggest risk I think that's right. And I think for a lot of the swing voters, you know, I'm saying, you know, are you going to check the references on the economy? Are you going to look at these things? Are you going to open your mind to saying, you know, first two years, they were hard because of coming out of COVID and inflation and all that, but things are better. Um, if you're interviewing somebody for a job and you don't think they're up to the job in the threshold basic interview you do, you're not going to check the references. You're not going to make the phone call. You're not going to do your homework. So I do think that's a challenge for him on the age question or the performance question. However, people want to frame it in their own mind. Do people view him as up to the job for four more years? Now, where will they weigh that as opposed to, but the alternative is Trump? I don't, anyone who thinks they can understand how, that's, how those scales will align in people's minds next Labor Day, October 2024, forget about it. We got a long way to go before we get there. But I do think, is, is he up for the job? Is he an active, at this time of so much change, I think people want their leaders you know, they want to trust that their leaders are, are on top of things. Uh, and whether it's, the, whether it's the lighter schedule or the way they conduct themselves. And look, a, a lot of people have mocked them and they're in the White House. Um, you're right. Yeah, they man, and they, have a, they have a rightful chip on their shoulder right, right. for that reason. And so, so they'll get all this criticism and they'll say, yeah, we heard this in 2020, right? right. And, and we're the president of the United States. Uh, I think there's probably a middle ground somewhere. Uh, very quickly on the Ukraine piece you mentioned. I know it's not central to our conversation, but as someone who covered the White House for 10 years uh, and as someone who tries to keep in touch still, I miss that part of the job. I miss that part of the job learning about the world. Whether you think Vladimir Putin should be allowed to have Ukraine or not, uh, which I would argue he should not uh, because yes. of the, the domino effect that would have the on- Terrible, yeah. terrible precedent. But President Biden has done a mind-blowing job keeping that international coalition together. Um, that's not a partisan statement. That is just an observation of doing yeah. this for nearly 40 years and understanding how hard it is at this moment 
to keep all of these different players uh, involved in this coalition. Uh, does he get any domestic political credit for that? Apparently not, at least at the moment. Uh, I do think, again, one of their communication challenges is connecting that to the point we were having earlier about democracy and institutions and the role of America in the world and in its backyard of reinforcing its foundations and standing up for the things that are absolutely critical, like democracy, whether it's at home or whether it's in the global stage. Because if you if you lose that fight, then you've lost, then there's nothing left to fight for. Yeah, well, I think he's he's headed in that direction, but the waters are muddied. And how much people value that, I think, will be very much one of the questions. The other issue is the vice president and her own standing. And you see Republicans now increasingly trying to elevate her. Nikki Haley said, well, I, I, I'd vote for Trump if he were the nominee, because I don't think we could afford a, a vice, a, a president Kamala Harris. And you hear more and more Republicans saying that. So that's going to be another dimension of the Republican attack. And I think it's going to be a messy terrain <laughs> heading into next year. And, um, uh, I think Messi is an understatement. Look, there's a huge challenge and opportunity for the vice president if she can step up and allay the doubts, not only of Republicans, but I think there are, you, you, you hear this as much as I do, there are some doubts in her own party about has she grown? Is she ready? Can she do this? Uh, and let's be fair, it's also a thankless job. Whoever has that job takes a lot of, um, you know, there are some legitimate questions and then they just take a lot of, you know, silly political reporters have nothing better to do, political donors and uh, gab gabbers don't have anything better to do. So that's, they just talk about that. Uh, but it is a great opportunity for her. But I, I, to your point, I think number one, because Republicans are going to run that campaign, uh, we always say, you know, people pick presidents, not vice presidents. But I do think one thing to watch out for is does the role of the vice president, uh, because of that question, Biden's age and what I'll call questions about her, maybe it's more elevated than it has been in prior campaigns. I think that's possible. And the other thing we haven't mentioned, it's going to be messy anyway. And now we're navigating this whole, um, you know, new frontier of artificial intelligence and people, yeah. a lot of what you're yes, seeing, yes. a lot of what you're going to see may not be real. Uh, and whose job is it to police that? Good luck. Well, one of the questions that I, I hope you probe when you go out and talk to people is where do they get their information? Where are they, where are they hearing stuff? Because what's so striking, and you do this, I'm sure, but I watched after Trump's last indictment, I watched... Uh, the coverage on Fox and the coverage on you know CNN and the coverage on MSNBC and it was very different. It was very different, particularly the you know in prime time. It's it's very very different. And if all you get and this is where the world in which we live is, if all you get is one one side of the story, you're going to believe that. And I think that's one of the reasons why you get sixty something percent of Republicans and conservatives saying, yeah, the election. There's something wrong with the last election. And uh, you're right, it's going to be worse as the technology gets more sophisticated. You know, and the question is whether we can develop counter strategies to keep that from happening. But this deal, man, is a lot more complex than the one you and I walked into, uh, f you know, 40 years ago. Uh, it is way more complex. And the technology has a lot to do with that. The polarization has a ton to do with that. The point you made earlier, just about respect for the other side. Um, we can fight about things, we can argue about issues, but the two sides used to have a more respect for each other, the way you talked about, you know, George W. Bush treating the process, if not the person, uh, and then having, you know, having a personal affinity for the challenge, right? The, the ex-presidents, with the exception of Donald Trump, I think have a great deal of respect for each other because they know how hard the job is. They know what, whether you agree or disagree with what that person's going to do, uh, you understand the gravity of the position. Uh, that part is lost. Um, again, I, I, I'm a I'm an optimist. Um, you don't get to you don't get to where I am from where I came from if you're not an optimist about things. So I hope we shake this out. But I do think that th that we're in another one of these remarkably close contested elections with so many crazy things out there, which is again why I don't want to sit in Washington and cover it. I want to get out in America and cover it. But I have so many more questions than answers about how it's going to go, which makes it fascinating, and I guess yes. in some, some ways makes it daunting. Well, you know this from your own long distinguished experience that if you go out there with more answers than questions, you're doing the job wrong. And that's the mistake I think that sometimes gets made. You know, you read a poll and you try and fit your reporting to the poll and 
you know, it just may be that people are counterintuitive. And uh, no, I'm jealous. I wish I could do what you're doing. I, I, you know, I always, when I was doing the, after I left reporting, when I started getting more notoriety, I really wanted to do the focus groups. I, I wanted to actually moderate focus groups because I was so interested in having these conversations, but people would, if you walk in the room and people know who you are and you're a partisan or viewed as a partisan, that destroys your ability to have great conversations. So I'm envious of you to have them. Listen, before we go, we talked about all this rapid change and one of the changes has been in the news business. I mean, CNN has, has, you know, very publicly had problems, regime changes and reverberations from that. But the industry itself, television news, you saw Iger talk about Disney disgorging ABC, that it wasn't part of their core future and so on. You saw what happened at ESPN. I'm testing your optimism now and asking you, what future do you see for television news? I think we have a challenging future and we're at this unpredictable moment for a number of reasons. Again, the technology, uh, the polarization that if you want to just go to choir practice and listen to pick an outlet that tells you you're right, um, then you can do that. I would urge any, all Americans of any stripe to not do that. Think about it like your sports team. You want to scout the opponent, right? You want to watch the other side to see what they're doing. You might even learn some things from them. Uh, but the business is in a challenging time. I can't see into the future. Um, COVID accelerated cord cutting. People were at home, so they cut the cords. Uh, the whole bunch of things all happening at once. Here's where my optimism comes from, Dave. The thirst for information is greater than ever. Uh, my older kids are 30 and 26. Uh, they are incredibly different. One is in scientists and one is in uh, finance. They're wired completely differently. Uh, but they not only stream their shows on Netflix or Max or whatever, but they watch documentaries. Uh, they, they, they're, they're, looking, they're looking for places to get interesting content. Uh, and so we're going through, you know, we're essentially the water's boiling right now. And it's hard to tell what's going to rise to the top and what's not going to make it. Uh, but the thirst for information is what keeps me going. And so the idea being protect your brand, your personal brand. Uh, protect your company brand. Yes, yeah, CNN is having some issues at the moment. Like every big company in America, you periodically have issues. Uh, we'll get through them. We'll, we'll get through them. We have really good people here. Uh, and so we're running into a campaign, which is usually a great moment uh, for CNN. Uh, so we have an opportunity to, you know, uh, put some management issues behind us uh, and put our best people on the field and come out of this. And I'm, I'm convinced at the CNN level, we will be fine. Uh, that this challenge, we will turn this challenge into an opportunity and learn the lessons and get even better from it. And I'm hoping I have a small piece in that. But the bigger question, you know, save this tape. Somebody can look at it in five years, 10 years, 15 years, and 20 years, because everything in our life, including our business, is going through their transitions. So what do the, the athletes tell you when the game is on the line? Slow it down, right? Uh, when things are incredibly complicated, my attitude is rally around your simple fundamental your simple fundamental principles, which is be fair, listen, report the news, shove the BS to the side, and we'll be okay. People, the, the more complicated people's lives are, the more they're going to look for trusted sources for information to help them. Um, it's going to take us a while to sort through all that, uh, but I'm really, I, I, I I have to believe, right, because of what I do for a living. But I honestly do believe um, that, yes, we're in this dusty period, but we'll, we'll come out of the tunnel on the other side and the people who stick to the principles of facts, fairness, truth, respect will be just fine. If, as you say, and I believe that CNN is going to put its best people in the field, you certainly are one big asset out there and uh, really look forward to hearing your dispatches from the front to try and uh, sort this out. John King, it's always, I could talk to you forever, brother, and I look forward to more conversations during the course of uh, this year and beyond. You should come tag along on a couple of these trips. We can give you a mask. We can hide you. <laughs> maybe I'll get a phony mustache. You know, it's been long enough since I shaved my, maybe I can get away with that. And I'd love to do that. I'd love to do that. All right, brother. Great to be with you. Great to be with you as well. Thank you, David. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, brought to you by the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio. 
The executive producer of the show is Miriam Finder Annenberg. The show is also produced by Jeff Fox and Hannah Grace McDonald. And special thanks to our partners at CNN. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.